Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to get from Acts chapter 4, verse 32, down to chapter 5, verse 11 today. And while you're turning to Acts 4, verse 32, I'm actually going to read to you from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to hear this story because it is a parallel story in a lot of ways to the one we're going to read today. This is Old Testament. This is when the children of Israel are in the wilderness Before they came into the promised land, they had just built the tabernacle. The priests had been ordained. And we see in Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord." You catch that? They were offering incense in the tabernacle, and either from the holy place, fire came out. Maybe it was from the censers with the incense they were swinging. Maybe it was just the Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire itself that burned them alive in the tabernacle. And Moses said to Aaron, who had just lost two of his sons, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. I will be regarded as holy the older translation would put it. So you have this story. The tabernacle was first erected in the wilderness. Aaron's sons went about their priestly duties. And the very next piece of instruction that Moses gives in Leviticus is about drunkenness. What we assume is what happened is these guys went into the tabernacle to offer incense before the Lord and they were drunk in the holy place. Doesn't say that specifically, but it's kind of the the message you get. Whatever it was, the Lord sent a very clear, sobering message to the people. He had called the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to be his holy, sanctified people. To be sanctified is to be set apart as holy, right? We call this the sanctuary. It's the room that has been set apart for holy purposes. And God was calling his people, Israel, to be sanctified, to be set apart for holy purposes, to reflect his glory to the whole world and to honor his holy presence in their midst. Remember the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, that was the presence of God with them. And it was a holy presence. And the Lord expected them to honor that. In fact, five times in Leviticus, the Lord would tell Israel, you must be holy because I am holy. And Peter would repeat the same commandment to the church in 1 Peter 1, verse 16, that we must be holy because the one who called us is holy. In the book of Acts so far, we've seen that the church has faced opposition. The Sanhedrin called them in after they healed the lame man and tried to intimidate them, tried to make them afraid so that they would not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And we saw last week that they responded the way they should have responded, with prayer, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to preach the word with boldness. They were prepared for anything the world could throw at them. They were prepared, they were prayed up, and they were on the lookout for any opposition. So the devil, rather than throwing a punch to the face, effected an attack from within their own ranks. And God is going to send a similar message in this passage here. When we pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we are inviting the presence of God into our midst. There was a trend, and it seems to have died out, at least as far as I can tell, in worship music of the presence of God, singing about the presence, and we want your presence to be here. That's great. That's exactly what we want. But when we invite the Spirit of God, we call him the 
Holy Spirit. You are calling upon the Lord to make this little spot in Alabama to be holy like the place in heaven is holy where the angels continually cry out, holy, holy, holy. That's a heavy thing. It's something we should desire and we should want, but it's still heavy. And while God in his grace does not strike down every hypocrite in church, does not strike down every liar, we as his people have a responsibility to maintain our own holiness in the presence of God's Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is invisible in our midst, but he's there. Jesus would compare him to the wind that blows. And you can't see the wind, but you can see his effects. And I can say we can see the effects of the Holy Spirit in this church. If we're that tree that you can see the branches blowing and the leaves shaking, and we ought to respect the holiness of the Spirit by maintaining our own holiness and also holding each other accountable. So let's read this story. We're going to start at verse 32. It's going to start out very positively, and it's going to take a very unfortunate turn when we get to chapter 5. So let's start in chapter 4, verse 32, and I'll read down to verse 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Circle that word, common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is another one of Luke's classic summaries in the book of Acts. We've seen several of these where something important will happen, and then he'll sum up, and after that, here's what the character of the church was like. And this happened, you could say, before Pentecost, and then right after Pentecost, and then now that they've had that first encounter with the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see these as we go throughout the book, and the numbers vary depending on how you want to categorize them. So it's not really important, but I'll draw attention to them as we see them. But he now refers to the church in verse 32 as in the ESV, the full number. The Greek there is plethus. It's the fullness. That word can be translated multitude. You could say the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul because now there are thousands and thousands of Christians meeting in the temple every day. We saw on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added. And then after they healed the lame men, it said that the number grew to 5,000 men. And that is unclear whether they were adding 5,000 more that day or if the number grew to 5,000. Either way, there's a lot of people here. There's a multitude. This is the first megachurch meeting in the temple's courts. And while a large church has its challenges, a small church has its challenges, right? We have things that we wish we could do and, and limitations that are placed on us. And there are commandments that are more difficult for us to obey as a smaller church. And that is true of large churches too. That there will be some things that if we grow and the Lord blesses, we'll look back and say, man, wasn't it just easier and simpler when we only had 25 people come in on Sundays? And then someone will maybe say, yeah, but do you remember this or that? And they'll say something, yeah, well, at least we don't have to do that anymore. And there's advantages and disadvantages. And one of the disadvantages, or I should say the temptations that can come to a larger church, is for the number to be so large that there's a lack of fellowship and love and community between all the people. And large churches have to work very hard to maintain that. 
But you can see here that even though there was thousands upon thousands of people, maybe even as many as 10,000 or more Christians, they were all with one heart and one mind. And it says that they were holding all things in common. We talked about this word, remember, back in chapter 2 when he shared again that they were selling their possessions and having all things in common. It's that word koina in Greek. It's where you get koine Greek, which was the common language that was written for the New Testament. It's the same word that we use to make koinonia, which means fellowship or commonhood or community. They were together. They had love for one another. And you can see that the reason is in verse 33, that the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The church was rooted and committed to the gospel. We talked about this last time, right? They refused to be budged into anything else. We're not going to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We're going to keep the testimony at the center. And God gave them grace for it. The Lord always honors his gospel, doesn't he? When we can keep on the, on the Bible, on the testimony of Jesus, on what the Lord has said, sound doctrine, as Paul will say over and over again, the Lord gives us extra grace. And he mentions great power. We'll see more of that soon enough, more miracles that are happening. In fact, next week, there's some pretty radical things that God was doing. Because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the last verses, we saw they prayed and God filled them with the Spirit and they proclaimed the word with boldness. But before Luke goes on to describe the miracles that were done, not to minimize them, he first describes how the character of the church was transformed by the Holy Spirit. The Lord in their midst first began to transform their character. You see, the wealthy among them were selling their properties. And this is not to be, be thought of as everybody was just putting all their money in one big pot. It's very specific. Those who had land, property, those who were wealthy that had uh, an abundance, those who had more than they needed or could use, they would sell to help those who were in need. And I think that it is possible, although it's not certain, we see this after this second big mass conversion. So the first time we saw them doing this was when 3,000 people were saved. The second time we see them doing this is when 5,000 people were saved. So I think what's possible is that this was not necessarily happening every day, but when you invite this many new Christians in, who are all Jews at this point, not only would they have been traveling from all over throughout the diaspora, traveling from Galilee and needing someone to provide for them, but they also would have been facing persecution from their own families. And they might have lost their jobs. They might have lost clients. And now these Christians that are dependent on that daily denarius, that daily wage, can't provide for themselves anymore. And while the church can manage it when it's coming in slowly in a trickle, when you've got thousands of people who now need help, what are we going to do? Well, the wealthy among them say, hey, this is something we can help with. We can help with funds, so let's start selling some stuff and giving it away. So it might not have been happening every day all the time, but it seems that this was happening when there was a need for it, which is awesome. And it enabled this revival to continue. We're going to see in a few chapters that these people are going to have to start going home eventually, and they're going to take the gospel with them. But for right now, it allows these thousands of Christians to stay together and to have those early you could almost call them honeymoon days with the Holy Spirit, where he's teaching them. And there's not a whole lot of pressure coming from outside. And they're being grounded in the doctrine. And this enabled them to do that. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 
It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. Now, we don't really think of oil being anointed on the head as a symbol of something that we desire. They're kind of like, oh, it seems kind of icky. But hey, if you don't have showers every day, then getting oil poured on your head and being able to smell nice for once and everyone being able to see this person has been blessed and anointed and he compares it to the rain that falls on Mount Zion. It's, it's like he's saying, when the brethren are dwelling together in unity, it's a little taste of heaven. It's a little taste of what Mount Zion ought to be like. And when the Holy Spirit dwells in the midst of a church, the character of God begins to be made manifest and love and unity overflow. The church comes together. There's love for one another. Jesus had taught some hard things about money, and we read through them in the book of Luke, didn't we? Some of those you're like, are you sure about that, Jesus? He says, give to everyone who asks of you, and do not ask for it back. You go, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I've worked hard for that stuff, and I know what this scoundrel is like. I'm not going to let him borrow anything. Jesus said, if anybody wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your shirt too. Like, really, Jesus? Are you sure about that? That doesn't sound very American, but it certainly sounds Christian, doesn't it? And they had heard these messages, and maybe a lot of these people had heard them and thought to themselves, ah, Jesus is a great guy, but I just don't know if I could follow that guy. To live like that? Who can live like that? Well, the Lord said, I'll help you. And he sent his Holy Spirit, and the Spirit was now empowering them to live out what Jesus had taught them. How could they be selfish with what they owned when they had brothers who had nothing? who were going hungry, who were poor in the church while they were here, who had so much. And they said, listen, money isn't a thing, right? Property isn't a thing. It's all going to burn someday. I'm going to invest it, so to speak, in some heavenly rewards, as Jesus said. And the Holy Spirit made it easier and possible for them to obey the commands that Jesus had given, not as a burden, but with joy. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's not just miracles and power. Although that's not to minimize those things. But a spirit-filled church centered on the gospel is a loving church. There are folks that have all their doctrine lined up, and they're the meanest people you'll ever meet in your whole life. You ever known folks like this? They've got everything right. Everything looks good. Maybe you've even been to a church that has a great reputation for being a great place to be. And then you walk in, and like, what's everybody so mean for? Nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody wants to look at me. Nobody wants to shake my hand. And God forbid we should ever get to that place. I'm not going to judge anybody, but I'm saying, like, it doesn't match, does it? Or you hear somebody who they're a great philanthropist and they love the poor and they love the lost. I can't wait to meet them. I've read all their books. And you meet them and they're kind of a jerk. It's like, where's the love? It's, it's incongruous. It shouldn't be that way. Because if the Spirit is being poured out on you, there should be love flowing out of you as well, right? Love and joy and peace and patience. And that's what we ought to be focused on as a church. If we're going to be praying for the Holy Spirit's power, if we're going to be staying rooted in the doctrine that the Lord has given us in His Word, we can't then neglect the character that Jesus has taught us. It all really comes down to we're disciples of Jesus, and He taught us how we ought to be. And it's hard sometimes, and it's difficult to overcome some of those things, but the Holy Spirit comes and helps us. And that's what was happening here. One of those great revival stories where you could picture them reminiscing as they're older, like, man, do you remember that, those days when everyone just started selling their stuff and giving it to the poor and we didn't even have to worry about where stuff was going to come from or where food was going to come from and everybody had a place to live and stay? And It's awesome. It's a great story. 
And in fact, we're going to see somebody who apparently uh, had some level of recognition as, as especially generous in doing this. Let's read verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles, underline it, it's the first time we meet him, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we're introduced to our first, you could say, new character in the book of Acts, who's going to be around for a while, if, unless you don't count Matthias. This is Joseph Barnabas, and he's going to be here for a while. He's going to be a companion of Paul's. He's going to be an evangelist. He's going to be an elder of the church in Antioch. He's even going to be called an apostle in certain places. He was a Levite from Cyprus. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea. The Jews had settled there during the reign of the Ptolemies. We talked about this a long time ago, but this is when Alexander the Great's Greek Empire collapsed, and they were ruled over by the Seleucid dynasty, and then they were ruled over by the Ptolemy dynasty. Cleopatra was of the Ptolemy dynasty, if that makes any kind of connection for you. And this was the dynasty that Israel would eventually cast off and have the Hasmonean kings before Rome came in. But it was during that period of the Ptolemies, they began to settle on the island of Cyprus. And that's where Barnabas was born. And it's interesting here because Barnabas seems to be, have been a man of some means because he had a field. He had something that he could sell and give away. And this is interesting because in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 9 and other places, Levites were not supposed to hold property. They were not supposed to have an inheritance in the land because the Lord said, I am your portion, I am your inheritance, and you are to live off of the charity of the rest of these tribes. And it was a difficult thing. It's another one of those commandments that makes you go, Lord, how is this going to work? Are you sure about this? And it does not condemn Barnabas for this, but it's possible that Barnabas was not living like a Levite was supposed to live. His family had been accumulating property and accumulating wealth for themselves. And perhaps he saw this as an act of repentance as well. Either way, it's a very cool story. And they, they single him out. So it seems to be that there was a special level of generosity here. And his name was Barnabas, which was a nickname, right? That wasn't his first name. They just called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And that word for encouragement in Greek is paraklesios. It's where we get the word paraclete, which is to describe the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said, I will send you another encourager. It's a, it's a related word to when they call Barnabas the son of encouragement. And in that way, he is a son of the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways. He's demonstrating the character of God's Holy Spirit, where he's not holding on to his own things. He's not thinking about life with worldly eyes. He's thinking through the eyes of the Spirit. And this is how the Holy Spirit transforms a community. He starts with individual lives like this one. Lives that affect other lives. It doesn't lay it out very clearly, but apparently Barnabas' gift was enough of a, of a notable thing in the church that people sat up and took notice. And it would inspire and encourage the rest of them to continue. And this is what the Lord does. He takes one person, a man or a woman, and he changes their life. And the lives around them become affected. And then those lives become affected. Have you seen that checkerboard thing where you put a grain of rice on the first one and then you put double it, put two on the next one, and then four on the next one, and then eight. And by the time you get to the end, it's like more rice than exists in the whole world or something like that, right? That's what multiplication is like. God says, I'm going to take this person and they've got, let's say, five people around them. And those people are going to be affected. 
And you might think you have no effect on somebody. But when the Lord is using your life, there can be somebody who hears something you say or watches how you handle a situation, and they might even mock you for it in the moment. But it's like a seed that sits in their mind, in their heart, and they think about it. Maybe they get a little past the moment, and they're like, you know, I think they were right about that. And then they have kids, and their kids do something dumb, and all of a sudden the words that you spoke come out of their mouth and say, no, this is how it's supposed to be. And they think, yeah, I guess that was right. And it's starting to bear fruit in someone else's life because of the way that you have conducted yourself. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5, Paul wrote, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't get too big for your britches, Paul says. Think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think of yourself with sober judgment. A drunk person has a very high opinion of themselves. They're Superman. They can fly, they can run faster than anybody else, and they're smarter and cleverer than they've ever been. But of course they're not. That's why Paul says, don't look at yourself like a drunk person looks at himself. I'm fine, I can drive. He says, no, look at yourself with sober judgment. You know who you are. You know who God has made you to be, which means you don't let somebody bring you down, but you also don't let the devil puff you up. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually, check this out, members of one another. As a church, our lives are interconnected. The way you live affects the person sitting down the row from you, and not just because you're related. It affects all of us. And it's no good to point your finger at how everyone else is getting it wrong. Don't we have a tendency to do that? And maybe you're even right. You've got a long list of all the people you disapprove of. And maybe all those things are legitimate. But the Lord would even tell Peter when he was asking about John's future, he said, Peter, mind your own business and do what I've told you to do. Remember that story? And that's the question. Instead of spending all your time online ranting about who's getting it wrong, fill in your group and then go crazy on YouTube or Facebook or whatever it is. Instead, the Lord says, hey, what about you? Have you stepped up into your own calling? No, but I'm not as bad as them. That's not how God looks at you. God doesn't judge you on a curve. And if he was going to grade you on a curve, it would be the curve of Jesus Christ. And so then you're sunk. Jesus wrecks the curve for us, right? Barnabas set a selfless example of obedience to a difficult commandment from Jesus, which was to give freely and to be a, a generous and abundant in what you give. Even the people that maybe Barnabas in the past had looked down on these poor people as, well, if they had any sense, they'd be rich like me. It's not like I'm so great. It's just because I'm smart. And if they were smart, then they'd be rich. Well, now the Lord's like, hey, Barnabas, I want you to sell that field and I want you to give it to somebody who has nothing. Instead of fighting him, Barnabas said, yes, Lord. And it was so encouraging, they started calling him Barnabas. Your own spiritual discipline affects everybody else. It makes it that much more important. Guys, that's why we have the men's study and the women's study. That's why we're going to have that marriage event in a few weeks here. Because we come together to focus on targeted areas, you could say, right? We come together as men because there's things that men can discuss with each other that you can't discuss in the presence of the ladies. Ladies, same thing. You have your meetings because you guys understand each other. You can talk about things and struggles that you share that the men don't share because we're trying to grow up as a family, as a body together. But all of that is only as good as each one of us going home and continuing that process. Your own prayer life, your own time in the word. Because one person can set a dynamic example when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Remember a few weeks ago we talked about raising the temperature of the room? How you can come into a room and spiritually it's just ice cold. And you're excited about the Lord and you're ready to go and you want to share the gospel with somebody and you want to sing and you want to pray and you want to amen and everyone just kind of looks at you like, keep all that to yourself. You might be excitable, but after a while it just, you sink down. Right? And now there's no zeal. There's no enthusiasm left. And then the other way, if you come in and maybe you've got a hard heart and maybe you're not interested in anything that the Lord has to say and you get dragged here, but you come into a church full of people that love Jesus and are on fire for him and they're talking about the Lord and they're praying together without being prompted by the pastor, right? When they even gather at home, they're talking about Jesus and they're comparing notes on what the Bible says. That will raise the temperature of your own life. And that's what one person can do. One person can do that. Barnabas said enough of an example in the church that he's still to this day lifted up as our example of generosity. And each one of us should get excited and say, all right, Lord, if you could use him, a Levite who was living a greedy life instead of a life surrendered to the Lord like he was supposed to, you can do that with me. Raise the temperature of the room. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He fills up people's lives to affect each other so that the church begins to reflect the character of Jesus. But we come to chapter 5. And the first word of chapter 5 is but. And let's read these first two verses. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is in contrast to the example of Barnabas. In fact, this was probably a reaction to what Barnabas did. Barnabas sold a piece of land, laid it at the apostles' feet, and he got a cool nickname. Hey, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And they're thinking, I want a cool nickname. Why don't I get a cool nickname? I'm just as generous as Barnabas. So, hey, let's, let's do what Barnabas did. Now, on the surface, this is a good thing. Hey, they're selling the property and they're bringing the proceeds and laying them at the apostles' feet. But here's the problem. This couple is going to introduce hypocrisy into the church for the first time because they sell their property and bring in part of the proceeds. But here's the key, and Peter will explain this in a minute. It was not that they didn't give the whole thing. is that they made it seem like they gave everything when they didn't. We gave 100%, even though they only gave 85%. Was it wrong to only give 85? No, it was wrong to make everybody think they gave 100 because they were trying to boost their own reputation in the church. That's no good. They were doing this not to help the poor, not out of obedience to Christ, but so that they could build their own reputations, which would have been a false reputation, wouldn't it? If they had gotten a cool nickname like Barnabas, but really they had been lying and they had been hypocrites, then that would have been a shameful thing for the church. And when Satan knows that he cannot assail the church from the outside, he manipulates it from the inside. And this is a good reminder for us. The early church was not perfect. There was a lot of problems that the early church had. Because we can look at them, and they are an example for us in so many ways. But in a lot of ways, too, it reminds us that the church has always had to deal with these things. The first problem the church had ever that came from within was people lying about money. It's actually interesting because the last time that there had been a problem in the Christian community, it had been over money as well. Judas didn't feel like he was being appropriately compensated for his services to the Messiah. And so he started to steal. And then when he felt like that wasn't enough, he went and sold Jesus out. 
What is it about money that gets us as people? This is what Satan did. He knew he could get him this way. James would write in his book, James chapter 3, 13 through 16. This is Jesus' brother, who I've said before was kind of a hardcore dude. He would have been here and seen this. And this is what he wrote to the church. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is what they were trying to do, to be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. See what I mean? He's a hardcore dude. There was so much otherworldly generosity going on in the church. People intentionally taking a big financial step backwards because they loved somebody else in the church more. And they, they didn't even come in and say, now I want to have control over how this is given. They were just giving it. Say, you young 20-something apostles, I trust you to distribute this to the church. Otherworldly generosity. And these folks come in, and they could not shake that earthly way of thinking. Selfish ambition. Jealousy. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to have the position that Barnabas has. And instead of thinking, you know what? Maybe we ought to be imitating the character of Barnabas. They thought, hey, how about we fake it? They'll never know the difference. And that was an earthly way of thinking. That's how we do things. If you want to you know, impress your boss, there are ways to do that. You wait till he comes in the room, and the second you see him coming down, now you start wiping down the table like you've been doing it the whole time, right? Oh, oh, you're finally here. Oh, good, yeah, well, I've just been, you know, here all morning. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the manager at work now, and it's amazing the lies that people will tell to you. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, I'm almost there. And, like, I can see on my phone that you're not almost there. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Okay, it's been 10 minutes. Where are you? Oh, 10 more. Because what are you trying to do? You're trying to make me think, oh, well, he's, he's being responsible because he's letting me know, and he's being responsible because he's taking care of it. But reality, you're not. You're just trying to impress me. And this is what these people were doing. That's an earthly way of thinking. But you know what James says? It's not just earthly. It's a demonic way of thinking. Satan is a liar. He wants the, the glory that God has, but rather allowing the Lord to lift him up to his appropriate place, he said, I will grab it for myself. And if I have to lie, scheme, kill, whatever it takes, I'll get there. We are trained by Jesus not to regard money as a thing. It's not something that motivates us. It's not something that excites us. It's a tool that can be used to execute the will of the Lord on this earth. And Jesus repeatedly would say in Luke, invest the resources you have the carnal resources, he would say, for heavenly riches. This is not to, of course, say that having money is a problem. If these people didn't have money to begin with, they wouldn't have been able to do what they were doing here. I don't need to explain that to you. But it can still have the pride of place in our hearts. And that's a shame. There's no ladder in the church. Prestige and position in the same way. They're not things that we have. You go to visit some old, like, 1600s, 1700s church from like the pre-revolution in America, you'll go in there and they'll say, this was George Washington's pew. And you know why it was his pew? Because the rich people would pay money for the best seats in the house. And if they didn't show up, 
it was locked and nobody else could sit there. And all the rabble had to sit up in the balcony wherever they could squeeze in. And it was a point of prestige to have a, a pew in the church that was closer to the pulpit. And they would even have these big tall doors that they would pull and close so that they didn't even have to be looked at by the poor folks. How messed up is that? Like really, that's so weird. But like, does that have anything to do with Jesus? That is so clearly worldly ambition. We don't do that in the church because prestige and power and there's no rank and there's no order and there's, you know, a, of who's on top. And it's not like, you know, the, the basketball rankings where it goes up and down and every so often we want to re-poll and see where you stand. That's, that's so not Jesus. It's not what the Lord has taught us to do. The Holy Spirit brings us in harmony with God and each other, but Satan comes in and stirs up strife. Sort of like he did with Eve in the beginning. Remember, Eve and Adam were in paradise. And Satan was able to come to Eve and make her unhappy in paradise. That's what the devil still does. We come in and everything is great. We're so grateful to be here. We're so full of the Lord's joy. And then Satan comes in and says, you know, he's, uh, he's getting more FaceTime than you are. Or, you know, she's been honored in front of people and everybody seems to like her better than they like you. So what are you sticking around here for? Why don't you go find a different church where you can be top dog? People do that, man. You'll see that happen. Well, people will come into a church, especially smaller churches, because they think, you know, nobody knows who I am down the road and at work, nobody likes me, but I can get in this small group, I can rise to the top and everyone will love me. Demonic, James would say. And when things are going well in the church, there's always the temptation to shortcut the road of discipline and fake it. And the Lord is not going to let this stand. So let's look at verse 3 now. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Right? Nobody made you sell this. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Nobody made you give 100%. Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Sin is always so unnecessary, isn't it? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, oh yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Aren't you glad that the Lord only did this once? <laughs> this would be a perpetual struggle for the church, being comfortable where God has put us, being filled with joy despite our circumstances, the temptation to fake it, hypocrisy. But the Lord is going to, the first time it happens, send a very sobering message to the rest of us. Ananias comes and lays the gift at Peter's feet, and you can imagine the oohs and ahs that came from the crowd. Look at that. Just like Barnabas, just like Barnabas. Maybe even Barnabas was excited. Barnabas, we're going to see, has a tendency to only see the good things about people, which would even bring him into conflict with Paul every once in a while. But Peter knows that something's up. And the Holy Spirit 
told him what happened. I think this is as clear an example in the Bible of the gift of discernment or the gift of, of knowledge as, the, uh, as Paul would put it. Those things kind of start to bleed together after a while, but he knows what's happened. And he calls Ananias on the carpet in front of everybody. This would have taken some guts for Peter because he has no you know, signed, notarized proof of what happened. All he has is an impression from the Lord, the Lord speaking to him. And rather than say, hey, this is great, Ananias, thank you, and then taking him aside, the Lord has him publicly in front of everybody. What have you done? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? He recognizes that this was of satanic origin. Because remember, Peter himself had, been, had his heart filled with the work of Satan before, and he had denied Jesus three times. And the, again, the problem, the temptation was not to keep the money, because he said, I didn't tell you you had to sell anything, and I didn't tell you when you sold it, you had to give 100%. So why did you do this? The temptation was to lie about it for public recognition. And we've seen several times, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, this is what the New Testament standard for giving is. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Peter's saying, if you only wanted to give 85%, why didn't you just give 85%? Or whatever the number was. Because they wanted the applause. Ananias, he says, has lied to God, to the Holy Spirit. Really briefly, you can see how the Holy Spirit is identified as God here. He's not an angel. He's not a force. He's not something that floats in the sky. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And he says, you have lied to God. Very important Trinitarian language there, which we've talked about before, so I'll move on. But he is struck dead for this. His wife comes in. She is given an opportunity to come clean. And she maintains the lie. Oh, man, what do you think that was like for everybody watching her show up? Watching her walk in the door. Hello, everyone. Oh, praise the Lord. Blessed to see you. Oh, so great. Jesus is so good. And everyone's like backing up, you know, letting her walk. <laughs> and Peter's like, Sapphira, tell me the truth. How much did you sell it for? And she lied. And he said, so you guys didn't, this wasn't just your husband being sneaky. You guys conspired together to fool the church and lie to the Lord. He said, you have tested the spirit of God. And she struck down as well. Just as the Lord said to Moses about Aaron's two sons, if you're going to come near to me, you will regard me as holy. I will be sanctified among these people. They were testing the spirit of the Lord. The Lord had said, be holy as I am holy. And they said, oh, let's see if he means it. We have a tendency to do that. We push the limits to see what we can get away with. Say, hey, uh, maybe it's all right if I do this. You know, I, I've always said that this was wrong, but, you know, maybe if I do it, it won't be such a big deal. I mean, it's not like God's going to strike me dead. We do not test the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of Jesus is the Holy Spirit, and His presence is a terrible thing. And I don't mean that as an awful, sinful thing. I mean terrible as in it strikes terror into your heart to be in the presence of God. And the Lord did not continue this pattern. He didn't do this every time. But he laid down how he felt about hypocrisy in his church. Just like with Nadab and Abihu. With the Old Covenant, he said, we are not going to put up with this. The New Covenant, same way. We are not going to put up with this. And the Lord doesn't do this anymore. So here's the question. To whom does it fall to maintain the purity of the congregation? 
There's another story in the Old Testament. The first time something like this happened under Moses, the Lord struck down Nadab and Abihu with fire. The first time they went into the promised land, there was a man named Achan who kept back some of the spoils that were supposed to be given to the Lord. When they conquered Jericho, God said, you don't keep a thing for yourself. Everything goes to me. It was sort of the the first fruits offering. It was the tithe, you could say, of everything they were going to gain. But there was a man named Achan that kept back some stuff. And in the next battle, Israel was embarrassed by a smaller army at the land of Ai. It was called Ai, Ai. And Joshua comes to the Lord and says, Lord, what's happened? He said, there's sin in the camp. Go find out where it is. And the people put Achan and his family to death. There was a difference. The first time the Lord handled it, but the next time there was sin in the camp, God expected the people to handle it themselves. And the same thing is true here. Now, we are not a government. We are not a civil government. We have no authority to put anyone to death. I hope that is clear to all of you. I think you guys get that. The church has not always thought that, though, have they? Unfortunately. But the Lord, the first time it happened, God dealt with it. And every time after that, it is up to us as the church to deal with it ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking to the church there who had allowed a man to live in flagrant, incestuous sin in the church. And Paul told them in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4 and 5, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Not, this was not just put him out of the church. That was physically what it would have looked like. But he said, I want you all to get together and pray that his life would be so ravaged by his sin that he'll be willing to come crawling back to the Lord and have his spirit be saved. That's an intense thing. But this is the example that God has set for us. How seriously does God take sin? The first time it happened flagrantly in the church, he struck people dead. That's how seriously God takes sin. And that's New Testament. Church discipline exists because we are host to the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is here. When Isaiah was brought into the presence of the Lord, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. That's it for me. I cannot see God and live. It's over. And the only way he was allowed to live is that an angel took a coal from the altar and cleansed his lips. And we say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Good, we should say that. But you then need to recognize that if the Holy Spirit comes here, the same character of his holiness is here as it is in heaven. And that matters. That's a heavy, heavy thing. We cannot tolerate sin. Do you think God would tolerate sin in heaven, in his presence? Do you think any one of us would tolerate sin in the presence of God? Unrepentant, deliberate sin is unacceptable in the church. Now, do we struggle? Do we have times where we've got to come and we just come back weeping to the church because we're having trouble overcoming something? Yes, but deliberate, unrepentant, eyes wide open sin is not acceptable in the church. We don't let lies continue. We don't live lies in the church or theft or sexual immorality or drunkenness or divorce or whatever it is. We don't do stuff like that. That has to be our character here. We don't do that. And I'll tell you, because the church has fractured into so many little denominations and so many little churches, and God has has brought a lot of good out of that, and I'm not going to sit here and bash it every week, but here is one of the drawbacks. It is very difficult to execute church discipline when someone can hop right out the door and go down the road. It's tough. And the temptation that comes upon each individual congregation 
is, well, if we try and enforce church discipline, they'll leave. And if they leave, then the church gets smaller. And if they get smaller, then that's a problem. This is not a business startup. We're not trying to pack them in, except to the extent that we want to see people saved. We can never look at the prestige of our own church our own church building, our own name, our own sign, our own whatever, and say that that's more important than maintaining the purity of God's congregation. God won't honor it. He won't honor it. Ezekiel had to see a vision of the, of the presence of God departing from the temple. And it strikes fear into your heart in a way. It's like, man, what if God were to remove his blessing from us because we were so stubborn in our iniquity? This is God's church. This is not a small business. This is not a social club. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And to make that point, God struck down the first hypocrites in the church. They're in the middle of a revival, y'all. People are coming in every day. And we're going to see next week that this event dried up conversions for a while. Nobody wanted to come and be part of the church anymore. Do you hear what happened over there? Somebody got struck down dead. I'm not, I'm not going over there. And we look at that and we might think of that as the worst possible scenario. God thought it was a worse scenario to be adding to the church and letting sin continue. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. He is not to be trifled with. This is serious business. And we see this in verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Fear, phobos, is where we get the word phobia from. We really, we really like to uh, nuance the word fear in the Bible. Oh, it says fear. It doesn't mean that they were afraid of God. Yes, it did. God just killed some folks. That's what the fear of God means. It doesn't mean that you're, you don't want to come to God, but it means that God is serious and he means business and he's all-powerful. So when I come before the Lord, there's a little bit of trepidation in my heart. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm brought in by the blood of Jesus Christ. But he's still God. He's still the God that sent 10 plagues down on Egypt. Read the book of Nahum if you're ever confused about God's character. First verse is, The Lord is a man of war, mighty in his wrath and raging against his enemies. You were afraid of your dad growing up, weren't you? You still loved your dad, but it kept you in line, didn't it? Because you knew what your dad the retribution your dad might bring down on you. Maybe it was your mom. I don't know what your childhood was like. That's a very small piece of what the fear of God is. The fear of the Lord. The church was sobered in the middle of a revival. By the way, verse 11 is the first time in the New Testament, or at least in the book of Acts, we see the word church used to describe the family of believers. Ecclesia is the Greek word. Now here's the question as we close here. Was this really such a big deal? God killed some people over this. Was this really such a big deal? Hypocrisy gets the death penalty? Really, Lord? There, there wasn't something more serious later on that might have deserved that? Yes, it did deserve the death penalty. Because the subtleness of that temptation was insidious. And if you're going to let that get into the church, the Lord knew it will jeopardize everything. By performing a good deed only for the applause of men, they had stripped it of everything wonderful and holy. They had made charitable giving an act of showing off. Remember when Jesus saw the widow give her two mites? The context of that is that the rich were pouring in their great gifts from around the world. 
And the Lord didn't even look twice at that because they were giving out of their abundance. But the woman that just gave the two mites, Jesus was like, that's what the Lord loves. And now that same attitude is coming into the Lord's church. He says, no way, not here. The church that God uses and the church that he fills with his spirit must be holy. And there is some fear attached to that because holiness is a heavy thing. And of course, when you're in the presence of the Lord, you're filled with the fear of the Lord. The first thing God says is, do not be afraid. But we have to know who it is we're dealing with. Because it is not just the works that the Spirit empowers us to do. There must be a transformation of character and an overflow of love in God's church. Jesus would write to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He'd say, look, I love your works. I love all the stuff you're doing. Your doctrine is solid. You're confronting false teachers, but you've left your first love. Your character is slipping. Your heart is slipping. You're doing all the right things, but the Spirit is starting to, to atrophy. And he says, come back. Remember from where you've come. Go back and do the first things. And sometimes that's what we've got to do. We seek the Holy Spirit not just to do cool things, but to transform our character from the inside out. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The passion and the desire to be known, to be recognized. The passion and desire to be lifted up above other people. Ananias and Sapphira should have taken those passions and desires and nailed them to the cross. That's where the Holy Spirit leads us. To die to ourselves and then to be raised to walk in newness of life. When you follow after Jesus, it's like death, right? It's dying to yourself. And then you walk in a new life. But then to go back and to, to take up your old dead sin, it's perverse. It's blasphemous in a lot of ways. Saying, Lord, I want to go back and I want to take the old grave clothes that I was wearing and I want to take them with me. Why would we do that? It's like, Peter, why would you do this? What, that was completely unnecessary. If you had come in, and there's the thing, if they had come in and given whatever percentage they had determined to give, they probably would have been recognized as generous people. They would have been applauded, and rightly so. But because they decided they were going to cheat, they received something very different. Because the Lord is holy and the Lord is good. True goodness is a fearful thing. To see something or someone 100% undiluted good is to see the true standard of life. We might think, I, wanna, I just want to see the perfect holiness, purity of God. To see how separated you are in your own filthy rags would be a horrible experience. To see how good God is, to know that there's not even a little bit of sin in Him. Not even a little bit of corruption in Him. All of our popular understandings of who God is well, God will give me a break. And we, we judge ourselves by our own righteousness. But to see the pure, unadulterated goodness of God, there's no question about what side we belong on. But there's good news, isn't there? The good news is that God himself has reached down and bridged the divide with his own blood and brought us in. And now he tells us, be holy as I am holy. That's the church that God can use. A clean vessel that the Lord can fill up with his Holy Spirit and overflow to transform the world. And that's the church that we ought to be too.